Hi, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and welcome to Impact the Podcast, where we bring together some of entertainment's most creative minds to explore the themes and philosophies behind content creation. Today, we will be hearing from Pete Berg, Issa Rae, and Judd Apatow as we explore the theme, truth in storytelling. Is it tapping into some fraction of yourself or connecting so deeply with somebody else to convey their truth? Does originality lay in authenticity? And how can you identify truth in somebody else and their work? Today's sessions were recorded in conversation with Brian Grazer and Tyler Mitchell. Pete Berg is known for intense action movies with strong emotional roots. Often, they're even true stories. So for Pete, truth begins far before he starts writing the script. It begins with the world and having a complex, ground-level understanding of the landscape he's working in. It begins with research. Let's start with Friday Night Lights. Brian and I did Friday Night Lights together. Uh, it was based on a book, um, Friday Night Lights. It was a very well-received book that my cousin wrote. He was a, he was a, a journalist, and um, he spent a year, a little over a year, he moved his family from New York to Texas. And he's a very intellectual, uh, Ivy League-educated Jewish writer from New York. And he moved his family to Texas, which was like such a contrast in style, uh, just the aesthetic and the look of it all. But he went and really immersed himself and spent a year living with the community of, uh, in, in, the, in this case, a small town in Texas, Odessa, Texas. And he, he deeply embedded himself in that culture and into that football team. And the result was an extraordinary book that really kind of reeked of authenticity and, and truth. And he was able to capture the soul of that community in a way that really translated to the book. And when we talked about doing the movie, I, I kind of said, well, I think I need to do the same thing. And Brian was very supportive of that. So I went and moved myself down and spent almost a year, which was kind of weird because I was 40 and I was living at a high school, and living, <laughs> living literally on the futon of a, a, a senior football player in his with his like eight <laughs> sisters and his big redneck dad and who was like I'd be in the, in the house in the morning brushing my teeth with all the sisters who were these like beautiful volleyball players and his dad would walk by and be like what the hell are you doing here Jim Boy <laughs> and uh, but um, that year for me this I wasn't thinking about actually writing a screenplay I was just thinking about um, be, becoming a like creative authority uh, on that culture, so mm. that it was really in my in my DNA. And once I felt like I had it, I was able then to start to start outlining and to start writing. But I had such a good sense of what I wanted to do and kind of what the the reality of that world was. And um, I've done that on, on almost everything good that I've ever done. I've really <laughs> immersed myself in the culture. Um, and I believe, you know, every, everybody has their own process, but for me, um, research and more research and more research is critical to my beginning the writing process. And once I've done that, um, it becomes a lot less daunting um, and scary and confusing because I feel like I really understand, you know, the world that I'm trying to, to write, the, the language that the characters that I'm writing speak in, the realities, the themes, all, all of those kinds of things. So for me, um, research is, is everything. How did you adapt something that seemed, to right. me, 
uh, unadaptable? Like, how did you turn that into uh, the highly acclaimed series? So, the, the, again, and this, like, um, ties into, like, the idea of connection. Okay. So we made this movie, uh, Friday Night Lights, and um, during the, during the um, filming of it, we would film real high school football games uh, around Texas, and then we'd send camera crews down, and we'd film these real games, and we'd take that real footage and put it in the movie at different parts, just because we were trying to make a film that felt very real, and you know, had that kind of like, uh, almost like a docu-style of, like, we wanted this to be like, this shit's real. Um, so yeah, you was, created an amazing cinematic style. Well, thank you. And yeah. so we were, we were filming um, a game, a real game, a playoff game in Austin, Texas. Um, and it was a big game. There was 50,000 people at this game, which for a high school game is a, a, big, a very big deal. Um, and it was a playoff game. It was a school from Austin against a, a school from San Antonio. And I was there. We had two cameras filming it. Um, and I, I didn't go to a lot of these games that we were filming because they're all, but I was at this game. And in the fourth quarter, um, there was a pass, and um, the receiver went up to get catch the ball, and a kid from San Antonio dove to tackle him, and he broke his neck. In that oh, moment, yeah. he became an instant quadriplegic right there in front of us. And it was, uh, it was dead silent in that stadium. 50,000 people just dead silent and the only sound you heard was his mother starting to scream and, and I was looking I couldn't see the mother on the other she was on the other side she said and it was just dead silent it was just screaming and screaming and then she got out onto the field and it was, it was 50,000 people watching this and you knew that this kid's name is David Edwards he was paralyzed you could tell right there it wasn't gonna get better and this, there was no ambulance there and the the scream of his mom, you start hearing the ambulance from far away, you start hearing the ambulance getting louder, and that sounded like a scream. So it was a mother screaming, and the ambulance screaming, the mother and the ambulance, and, the ambulance, and then the ambulance got on the field, and nobody moved. 50,000 people were just like, and uh, they took David off, and after the game, the next day, we went and visited with David Edwards. And he was an instant quadriplegic. He had an explosion fraction, fracture of his vertebrae. And I got to know David Edwards and his mother, Faye Edwards, and Koi Ani, who now lives in LA and works in camera, who was the kid that went up for the pass, who's the kid whose futon I lived on when I was <laughs> living there. So I tend to know an incredible family. And um, I got to know David and a year after that, he died. And so that was in me real strong. So when we were talking about, and if you see the pilot of Friday Night Lights, the first episode, a quarterback breaks his neck and becomes a quadriplegic. So I knew like I had the fire. I didn't know what the show would be, but I still had all that fire in me. And I had done so much in that world of football in Texas that I wasn't done with it, I still loved it. I can do this. And I remember Kevin wow. Kevin Riley yeah. was the head of NBC. He bought it? Yeah, he bought it. And I remember I pitched him, I'd go, I'm gonna I'm gonna in the in the pilot, I'm gonna introduce the all American golden boy in the first three quarters of the pilot and right at the end I'm gonna break his neck. And Kevin Riley's like, You can do what man, I'm gonna break his neck. And he's like mm -hmm. 
damn. And I wasn't fucking around because I knew it. You know, I knew what that looked like and I knew what that sounded like. And that, that passion, having David Edwards uh, in, my, in my spirit, gave birth to that whole series. I think she went to one of those schools. This was the moment in the conversation when Brian looked over at me and realized I went to that high school, which is Westlake High School in Austin, Texas. It's a place that lives and breathes football, and everybody in the community I grew up in knows that story. And the research Pete Berg did to make Friday Night Lights authentic is so evident. Texas high school football is its very own specific culture, and Friday Night Lights struck a chord that was uniquely honest to the emotional core of the world that I grew up in and my friends grew up in, who did become huge football stars on both the collegiate and pro levels. So for me, in that moment, hearing Pete talk about the research and becoming enveloped in our subculture was an emotional experience of its own. And I realized that is what truth and storytelling is all about. I can never explain the culture of Texas football to anyone from the outside world because the loyalties and lineages of the game run so deep in our blood, it's hard to imagine anyone would really understand. Truth in storytelling is about making somebody feel seen and heard for their own truth on screen, which is what I experienced with Friday Night Lights. And I can only imagine military families felt the same about Lone Survivor. Like um, with Lone Survivor, which is a movie Brown was talking about, that was. Did any of you guys see Lone Survivor? Do you know it? So, you know, on the on the surface, that was. Um, I mean, I was you know Navy SEALs, and they're very tough, and you know everyone has a certain concept of what a Navy SEAL is, and this very violent um, experience they had, where 19 died and one lived, um, and I. I spent the first month of my research process just meeting the families of the guys, the children, the parents, the widows, um, and, and letting that be um, my, my initial emotional experience, was just feeling the, the pain, not of tough Navy SEALs having been killed, but of brothers and fathers and husbands and ch children, how much pain there was and how much love there was for these for these soldiers, and I started with that, and then I spent a tremendous of time, amount of time living with the Navy SEAL community until I really started to get to understand who these guys were when they took off their armor and put their guns down, which 99% of the time they don't have guns in their hands. Excuse me, and then um, I got to go to Iraq and actually embed with a SEAL really? platoon for a month, yeah, which was like maybe the coolest experience of my life. And that was the, the for me the tipping point. Month. Yeah, for a month. How uncomfortable up, was that? It was <laughs> it was phenomenal. It was I was with thirty Navy SEALs in this tiny little outpost by Syria. I mean, I I, I never felt in danger until afterwards, and I would because we really see the news and realize all the the, yeah. the things that were happening up there, and you know I saw them, I saw them fight, and I saw people get killed, and I really? saw all that kind of stuff. But what I really got to see was like. This is the reality of how this culture exists. This is how they really talk to each other. This is how they express vulnerability. This is how they um, handle boredom. This is how <laughs> they, the kind of political mm. debates they have. This is how they feel about politics. Oh. This is how they feel about religion. And, and, all, and so by the time I came back from all that, I was loaded up. Yeah, so you, as you just said that, I started to get it. So then, as you're experiencing these things that are just like a word or a sentence, <clears throat> You're feeling those are, they're parts of scenes. You can know how yeah. to fill it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like listening. When you just to said boredom, I thought if you're really feeling that and seeing it, yeah. you could actually write about it yes. and then make it cinematic. Yeah. Like or in, in you can find yeah. you can find the details of you know a guy. Oh, that's so deep. That's uh, like super important. Right? Yeah. Finding the 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 like like um. When I wanted to go to Iraq, I had to talk to this big general, actually an um, admiral in the Navy, who, who ran all the special ops. And I had to fly to, down to Florida and meet him. It was very intimidating. He had all his like, officers with him and stuff. And I pretty much looked like, I think I had a collared shirt on, maybe. <laughs> but I'd never been around this much. These are very powerful guys who were running the war. And this guy, his name's Eric Olson. He, he was an admiral. He's retired now, but very, very powerful guy. And he's like, you know, why the hell should I let you just gonna make another bullshit Hollywood movie and then you're not gonna get it right? And why should I let you what do you what do you want from me? And I don't even like Hollywood, you know, a bunch of liberal liberal you liberal, you're liberal. And, you know, and I'm like, um, and I said, Well, sir, all I can tell you is that if if you don't let me go to because I really was really lobbying to have him go, because they've never had a journalist, much less a screenwriter, in bed with a SEAL platoon that was inactive you know work and they were in combat and and um i said i i promise you if i don't go it's probably going to be a bunch of hollywood cliche bullshit <laughs> but if you let me go i promise you i i really work hard to make it not be that to find the reality to find the, and he kind of stared at me and shook my hand let me go and one of the biggest um uh, joys of of that whole experience was after we finished the film, we went down to, there's a big Navy base in San Diego, and Eric Olson and General Petraeus and Admiral McRaven, and these are the top guys in our military, um, and these are people who I, I respect quite a bit. We're all, I, we're, I thought we were screening the movie for just a bunch of Navy SEALs. They were all there with their families, and I was terrified. Um, and at the end of the film, um, Eric Olson, who was the guy who gave me the permission, walked up, he looked at me and goes, I'll give you a high five on that, son. And, and, like, and, and I said, well, that was because you let me go. And, and um, uh, so that, I mean, that's a big part of my process. We work in a collaborative industry. And as truth tellers, you want to build a team of like-minded individuals to work with. So how do you identify those people? Pete Berg's method comes straight from SEAL Team 6. I go, what's the most important question? He goes, well, the first question I ask anybody is give me a real honest example of a time that you overcame adversity in your life. Mm. And, and it's kind of an interesting question if you really like yes, force someone to talk about what their relationship with adversity is. Um, and I think that if someone can articulate and one example, yeah, yeah, honestly, because you can tell they're full of it. But if they've really come through something and are standing and are demonstrated resiliency and yeah. grit and gumption and, and cleverness and the ability to serve, that's that's um, something. And yeah, because most it is. people that's just a great question. They, yeah. they do everything they can do to avoid adversity and avoid. Oh, I don't want that. That's scary. But people that have been mm -hmm. in the fire. Um, and come out, I'm more inclined to be at least start engaging with someone like that. Wow. And I love your answer. I love it. It's Issa Rae looks at truth in a different way. 
the acclaimed writer, producer, director, actress finds truth in self, which comes across on screen in her HBO show, Insecure. For Issa, truth in storytelling began with connectivity. While a student at Stanford University, she took her career into her own hands and launched a web series about her experiences there, and the reaction was astounding. Facebook had come out during my time there, and you know I was addicted to, to YouTube and was spending a lot of time there and still studying and doing all that. I was, I was putting on plays and directing, but I just was fascinated with the fact that we just had access to an audience, access to so many people, access to my friends with the post of a, a button. And when Facebook released their posted items feature, which is what it was called at the time, before it was like links or just sharing videos, um, I was like, cool, I could just, I'm already sharing like old music videos with my friends and they're commenting. Um, what if I made my own videos and posted them online, you know? And at, at that time I was, trying to enter the industry traditionally. I was trying to, you know, we entered a Sundance script contest, um, my friend from college and I, and ended up being semi-finalist, and then took a trip to LA to pitch a script, and we just got told no a lot. And this was, you know, I was still in college, so um, I, I, I felt discouraged, but I was like, oh, it won't be like this. By the time I graduate, the opportunities are gonna be abundant. And they weren't. And for me, it was just about doing something in the interim. And so in making YouTube videos and making web series, my first web series was my senior year, and it just felt like, wow, I keep asking all these people to showcase my work, and I'm just I can just showcase it here. And yeah, the work is shitty, and it's low budget, and really only my friends are watching it now, but this feels like a step to something bigger, and I can at least do this while I'm continuing to try to enter, while I'm gonna to try to continue to enter the industry traditionally. So, and just as a writer, or were you considering coming in in any other capacity? Just as a, a writer, I think a writer, director at the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I wasn't pursuing acting, I was over it by then, and what's my first, my first web series that I created was a series about being black at Stanford University, and when I released that, it was called Dorm Diaries, I love alliterations. And when I released it, it didn't go viral, but it spread to a lot of other um, private schools on the East Coast where people were saying, this is my college experience, you know, this is what it's like to be black at Harvard or black at Duke, or, you know, different um, experiences, even black in my workplace. So for me, it was just like a, a, a sort of validation. How do you keep that fresh perspective and stay unique and be unapologetically yourself in your in your work um that's a good question because i you know i was just having that um discussion with some of the team members that i work with where they were just like what what would you say is your vision for the things that that you produce and write and like what is what do you what do you what's the umbrella and i was just like there's no umbrella like i'm not gonna like the same thing consistently and i don't want to make the same thing over and over again um, but I did have a revelation just a couple years ago, and a couple years maybe too late, but on time for me, but I was just driving, and I was like, um, oh shit, I'm me. And it was like, <laughs> it was like, oh, I don't, no one thinks the same as me, no one has the same perspective, like we'll have things in common, but there, no one views 
like this table over here. I view it completely different than you do. Like the, everything that I look at, I have a completely different perspective or I have a very unique lens. And that was powerful to me because I always had this fear that, you know, in, in the past and in coming up with an idea like, oh shit, someone's gonna take my idea or someone's gonna do it before I do. And I kind of had to let that go of just like, well, they're not gonna do it like I do it. They may do it better, but that's fine, but they're not gonna do it like, like, like me. And that was, um, that felt like a currency to me, and um, I think, yes, that applies to the first story, but you're, you're always going to, there's so many things in this world, there's so, so many stories to tell, there's so many experiences, and I really just dig deep in, in the things that make me special, things that make me unique, because that, that feels like what people will buy at the end of the day mm. and buy into. Issa's truth comes from carving your own path and building your own independent journey. With that in mind, this is what advice she would give her younger self. I did put a lot of pressure on myself, like in terms of comparing my journey to others and realizing that I just wasn't where others were. And I felt like I wasn't where I needed to be. And so, you know, I was just down on myself. Like I remember saying with a friend of mine, making a goal like, we're going to get Oscars by 19. And didn't even have a script. And we were like, <laughs> you know, 17. So it's just like, what are you, what stupid goals, intangible goals are you making for yourself? But I think we had just watched like Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon win uh, 23, 24. So we were like, we're going to beat the record. And it was just unnecessary. So um, I would just tell myself to stop comparing yourself to others. And it's just, it's not that serious. Go at your own pace. Isa has taken what she's learned about truth and storytelling into the core of her company. She's on a mission as a producer to provide opportunities for others to be able to tell their truth, and in a greater sense, change the conversation entirely. With the YouTube channel getting a lot of views from Opera Black Girl and the other content that was on, that we started distributing other people's uh, YouTube channels, I mean uh, YouTube shows or web shows because um, they were also like dope people of color, telling different stories. And if we already had the platform, we had the numbers, they could get the views and they didn't have to start, start from scratch. So then it became about, oh, duh, this is what I wanna do. I wanna start telling stories that, aren't, that television isn't. And then with the television opportunities, or while I was seeking television opportunities, a color creative came about because I was just kind of frustrated with the HBO process and the development process. And I was like, coming, spoiled, coming from the web series world of just like, man, I could just put this script, shoot it, on camera and put it out online right now. Like, why are they taking so long? And it was about that mentality of like, no new creators should have to go through this three-year development process. So let's just make their things for low, let's make low-budget pilots. And so um, that's how Color Creative started. Was just like, let's find uh, the least represented people with stories that wouldn't necessarily make it to the mainstream. Make their make their pilots for $50,000 each, um, and then put them online for people to watch and to, and to want. And so since then, you know, it's just been about like, pivoting and, and shaping the, what the companies are, and that's just an ongoing conversation. Judd Apatow has created some of the most iconic comedy films and television series of the past 20 years. From Freaks and Geeks to The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up, to Trainwreck, and most recently, the king of Staten Island, he has been able to create characters that audiences can deeply identify with across all walks of life. 
This is because for Judd, great stories begin with the inner truths of the creatives telling them. And having the courage to explore those personal themes and struggles is what makes his work translate so well onto the screen and into the minds and hearts of viewers. This philosophy has led him to kickstart the movie careers of some of the world's favorite comedians. For Pete Davidson, Judd recognized early on how talented of a comedian he was, but when thinking about collaborating, it was the truths of Pete's own life and that raw honesty that made Judd know there was something incredibly special to explore. I met Pete when I was doing casting for Trainwreck. And I said to Amy Schumer, who should I know? And the first person she said was Pete Davidson. There's this kid, he's 19 years old. He's so funny already, it's crazy. He has a really dark sense of humor. She, she told me that his, his father was a firefighter who died on 9-11. And he was just so great. And I, you know, I was a comedian at 17, I was terrible. I don't think I got good at it until 50. So <laughs> I was very impressed with how smart he was and how honest he was. So we put him in train wreck in one very brief scene, not even so much because we needed him. We just thought we'd love to just plant our flag and say we knew he would be a big star. And so he's in this very brief moment, but it's our way of saying we knew, we knew he was going to be the next guy. You and have a great so track record of that. Yeah, we do that sometimes. Jonah Hill is in The 40-Year-Old Virgin and... There's all, you know, there's all sorts of people that we, we believed in. Mindy Kaling is in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, playing Paul Red's ex-girlfriend, and Bo Burnham is in Funny People. So sometimes when we, when we can, we just like to use people that we think are going to take over comedy. And so he was so funny that Bill Hader said to him the next day, I'm going to call Lorne Michaels at SNL and recommend you. And then he got, he got cast on Saturday Night Live. So we talked about a goofy idea for a couple of years. It was something that I asked them to write and it wasn't the right idea. And then that kind of ran out of gas. And then one day we just started talking again and he wanted to do something about his mom, about how she had spent so much time taking care of him that he, he wanted to play someone who was trying to get, help her meet a man or have sex or something. And it was a, a crass version of it. And I said, well, wouldn't you, in truth, not like it if she met somebody? And what if it was a firefighter? Wouldn't that be your worst nightmare? Because then you'd have to confront everything that's held you back and bothered you, all your trauma. And then suddenly we were having the conversation, do you really want to talk about this? Because it's, I don't know, is this fodder for a movie? Is it too sacred to discuss? And he said that he was willing to explore it. And we spent a long time talking almost like a journalist to a subject I just asked him about his life for several weeks and then we started outlining with Dave Cyrus our co-writer and he turned out to be very brave and very willing to face all of it truth doesn't just come from the main character for the king of Staten Island Judd wanted truth to emulate at every turn this mentality is what led him to the talented Bell Powley Bell Powley I thought was just unreal in the in the movie and how did you how did you find her or, or like how was she on your radar i saw this movie that mari heller made called diary of a teenage girl which is incredible it's really a fantastic 
great movie, and her performance is stunning. Then I saw her in a play called Lobby Hero on Broadway. She was in it with Michael Sarah, and she's amazing at playing Americans. She's from London, so what's hilarious is she's got a better Staten Island accent than everybody in the movie, and so you couldn't be more different from that in real life. She is a bit of a genius, and she's another person that we thought, one day it'll be funny she was in this movie. <laughs> it'll be like having a you know, Dame Judy Dench in our movie. <laughs> so she was also friends with Pete, which I thought was important because I wanted them to be people who had known each other since they were little kids and were now toying with the idea of seriously dating each other. And Pete's character doesn't want to do it because he really feels like he's going to pull her down. He loves her so much that he doesn't want her to be close to him because he feels like he's a mess and that it's dangerous for her. And the fact that they had been friends for a few years made that connection feel real. You know, sometimes it's hard to build that when people don't know each other. And they make each other laugh. So you could shoot scenes in a very loose fashion with multiple cameras. And you, you know, you, you want to get from A to B, but you could change the words and goof with each other. It's hard to show people in love, people who have a shorthand, who make each other giggle where it, it's real laughs. It's not generated from the text. And there's a, there's a bunch of scenes like that where they're really amusing each other. And, and they, they love each other as friends. And so you feel that. With such an eye for talent, what is it for Judd that ignites that spark of inspiration to say, this is a person who has a unique story to tell, and they're the perfect person to tell it? How does he dig in and find the emotional heart of a story in a way not many others can? I, I, I'm just a fan, so I'll see somebody and just be, I'll have my own personal interest in them. Just like you might see anybody and think, oh, if they had, if they had a movie, I'd go. Except I'm a producer, so I think if, I, I love these people. If they if they have a great story, I'd love to try to help them figure out how to make it. And that that's the difference. Is now I have to be a part of it. Where as a young person, I just wanted to watch it. And so with Amy Schumer, I heard her on Howard Stern. I don't think I knew her stand up that well or at all. But she was an amazing storyteller, and she talked a lot about her relationships and what it was like having a father who has MS and. She was darkly comic, but also very warm about it. And I thought, I'd love to see a, a movie that was personal from her. And I had the same process with her. We worked on a goofy idea for a little while. And then one day we gave up on it. And we just said, well, what should we be talking about? What's the real stuff? And I just said, what, what's happening with your relationships? Why do you think they go wrong? And then she started telling me all of these really hilarious breakup stories and bad date stories. And it becomes a deeply psychological conversation about our blocks and traumas and what leads us to make bad decisions. And then we start imagining what health would look like. And the conversation usually becomes, what would need to ha have to happen for me to get it? What has to happen to me to make the choice to choose a healthier life how, how would i even know what health was and that's what a lot of these stories are in judd's movies the main characters are often the villains of their own stories 
Humans are messy and life is complicated, and more often than not, we're all just guessing our way through it, finding our footing, and trying to understand the basics of happiness. And it's those foundations of humanity that make Judd's films universally relatable. I think it's like thinking about how do I get in my own way? How you get in your own way is the villain in you, is your block. And everybody has trauma. Everybody has the way they were raised. Everyone has bad habits, bad emotional or psychological habits that stop you from connecting, that stop you from being honest, that stop you from making the right choices. And then, you know, if you're in therapy or you pay attention to your state, you start slowly peeling that back and trying to understand what your inclinations are about. And hopefully that can lead to you noticing when you're about to make a bad choice and not do it. And I think everybody is, is on that road. That's just what life is. It is about learning and growing. And you know, some people you know, talk about coming of age stories, but I think everyone's coming of age. I have friends who are 60, 70, and they're still having divorces and trying to figure out what they're doing wrong in their life. So I, I don't think coming of age is just about someone in high school or college. I, you know, I, I know uh, people who are a hundred and they're still working stuff out. So I've come to think that all movies are coming of age stories. Part of being human is being able to laugh at yourself. And within film, laugh at a version of your emotional self on screen. In Judd's work, comedy is the perfect spoonful of sugar to accompany the impactful truths that you end up taking away when the credits roll. I think that in a lot of these stories, the ways that we make mistakes are funny. And we root for people to not make these mistakes, but we, we do enjoy people screwing up. So most comedies start out with somebody not getting it. And then you see their life and it's usually a mess. And the way it's a mess is funny. It's funny to see people get fired. It's funny to see people get in fights with, with their girlfriends or boyfriends. And you know, people who are a disaster make us laugh, but we also want them to pull out of it. And I think that's part of how these stories are structured because that's also how it happens in life. There's no other path. You either get better or you stay in a rut. And no one wants to see a movie that starts with someone in a rut and ends with them in the same rut. <laughs> so we're trying to see how they do. Because I guess you could do a movie like this and then everything goes wrong and gets worse the end. But that's not <laughs> really the type of movie I make. There, I'm sure are uh, all sorts of uh, filmmakers that do do that kind of movie and that's fun. Uh, sometimes as well, if you're in the mood to, to feel really bad about existence. <laughs> but I remember when I worked for Gary Shandling, he thought everything was about, you know, digging to your core. That was what the writing and the work was about. Just getting, going as deep as you can go. And Gary mined his life and he created a fictional world on both of his television series. And people always wondered what was real and what was fictional but he did use the material of his life to create fiction and to talk about the human condition. And I think with all these movies, it is a soup of something truthful and something false to create a story. Looking back at Judd's career, we can trace truth all the way to the beginning. Let's go to Freaks and Geeks, a show that put the sidekicks on the screen 
and celebrated being the other. Even though this show was never renewed by the network, it has left a lasting impression for decades because it's unapologetically honest. A refreshing change from the glorified fantasy of high school we're so accustomed to in content. Judd and Paul Feig decided to lay it all on the line and tell the truth. I just signed a deal with DreamWorks to develop film and television. I hadn't done that before. So I was friends with Paul and I knew he had just made an independent film, which I really enjoyed. So I said to him, hey, I got this deal. Do you have any ideas? I know. <laughs> and usually you never hear from anyone ever again. You can say that to a hundred people, three people will call you back. You, you would think everyone would call you back or engage you, but most people don't engage you. And then one day Paul said, I wrote something. I'm going to drop it off. And I opened up an envelope. We didn't, we had never discussed it until I saw it. And it just said freaks and geeks. And I remember getting a chill just at the name. And I started reading it and I felt like I really understood what he was doing. I was probably a little bit of a freak and a little bit of a geek as a kid. Not fully in either camp, but 80% to either camp at, at different times of my childhood. <laughs> and Paul had a real philosophy about what he wanted to do, which is very clear. He wanted to show kids who were not represented on television. He was very tired of soap opera-like high school material. I think that was a time when everyone was gorgeous and in love and, and he wanted to show the other kids, which I've always been interested in, you know, the idea of making the movie about the person that's usually the best friend. Mm. And I loved it. We, we, we hired Jake Kasdan to join our team and direct and produce with us. And it was a magical experience, even though it was a painful experience because we knew that the network was not gonna let us survive for long. We just gave it everything we had. We felt that pressure of this is gonna end soon and injected it with as much of ourselves as we could. And Paul was so hysterical telling us all these stories from his high school experience. And he had such a vision that it was, it was, it was very joyous for us to try to make our contribution. Truth in storytelling looks different for every creative, but ultimately, it's about finding something tangibly authentic within yourself and within the characters you're creating. Whether that's through research like Pete, personal exploration like Issa, or being inspired by a collaborator as Judd has been, there are countless ways to tap into truth and convey it in your work. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode on truth and storytelling. And don't forget to follow at Impact Imagine on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date. While you're at it, leave a comment because we want to hear all about how you communicate your truth. We'd like to thank our Impact speakers for their time, wisdom, and supporting the creative community. We would also like to thank Impact's founders, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard, and Tyler Mitchell for making this all possible. Until next time, I'm Gretchen Lynch and have a great day.